You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Listen to what these guys are saying about Ray Garten here. Uh, Peter Straub, Garten demonstrates a master's capacity for extending and maximizing the good old tension-fear effect. Uh, Stephen King says it's scary, involving, mature, thoughtful. F. Paul Wilson says Ray Garten is and always has been one of horror fiction's great innovators. I have a theory about these quotes. He's got something on these guys. <laughs> he knows something, and he says, you know, he's been around for years, and he knows where the bodies are buried, so to speak, and that's why they're saying this stuff about him. But I will say that this is a recent book, Bestial, yeah. and, uh, uh, and Ray Garten first fell in love with horror at the age of five when he saw William Castle's 1960 film 13 Ghosts on TV. Uh, he sold his first novel, Seductions, at the age of 20. Is the author of more than 50 books. 50, 5 0, not 15. 50. Holy shit. Uh, as well as dozens of short stories, many of which have been collected. His 1987 novel, Live Girls, was nominated for the Bram Stoker Award and is now considered a classic in the vampire canon. Uh, his novels, Live Girls and Sex and Violence in Hollywood are currently being made into motion pictures. Um, and uh, he's always apparently at work in his next novel. Ray Garten. Can you hear me okay? Um, this is a story I wrote about 15 years ago. It's called Second Opinion. It's the shortest thing I could find that I was willing to read aloud. Uh, <laughs> Do you know what it's like to cut up your best friend with a hacksaw? <laughs> Probably not. Most people don't. That narrow metal blade with its fine, sharp teeth makes a very distinctive sound while it's cutting through human bones. I know that sound very well, and I'm not bragging, not at all. The food is very bad today, worse than usual. Instead of eating, I've been going over and over things in my head. One of the orderlies gave me this crayon and some paper, so I start, decided to start writing it all down. After all, that's what I do best, isn't it? I called him Hank, but everybody else called him Henry Carr. His work had won a lot of awards, including the Pulitzer, which he called in characteristic humility and nonchalance the putz puller. <laughs> he was truly a great writer, one of the best ever in my opinion, and I don't give a damn what any of those bonehead critics wrote or said about his work. The man was an artist with words, a genius. Aside from being a great writer, he was a great man, just a great person, plain and simple. He was my best friend and my mentor. He took me under his wing after reading one of my stories and tried his best to prepare me for the rejection that every writer has to tolerate with ease if he or she is to succeed. Hank recognized my talent and tried to make sure that I remained true to it. I very likely would have been a much different person if I had not known him and a much different writer as well. Yes, Henry Carr was a great writer, a great man and my best friend and mentor, and I cut his arms and legs off, then cut those into small pieces and wrapped his severed head in aluminum foil and plastic. I hate myself for it, but I've never forgotten what the reason I did it. 
When I heard Michael's knock at the front door, I hurried from the kitchen to answer it, still wearing my apron, which carried splotches of tomato sauce like, a, like battle wounds. Come in, come in, I said jovially as I opened the door, working hard to cover my anxiety, my discomfort. Mikey shuffled into the house nervously, still behaving as if this were our first meeting and he was still nothing more than a young beginner. That wasn't the case at all. I'd known Mikey for seven years and he always behaved that way, showing me deference that I didn't deserve. It bugged me a little because he was every bit my equal. The fact that he didn't realize that yet was a bit annoying. Michael Anderson's latest novel was number one on the bestseller list. He'd consulted me several times on the first two novels, but not at all on the third, and I saw that as a good sign. He'd found his voice, his rhythm, his niche. He'd set sail on his own, and that was good. When I first met him, he'd written a couple of critically acclaimed novels that had been purchased by a grand total of about eight people, and I tried to encourage him to keep writing in spite of that, because his talent was very obvious. I knew that he just needed some seasoning and a little guidance, not unlike the guidance I had gotten from Hank. Geez, Greg, I said, I haven't seen you. In, he said, I haven't seen you in so long. Yeah, I know, been busy. Well, that's good, but nobody's seen or heard from you in a long time. We've all been kind of worried about you, Greg. I was really surprised when you called me out of the blue, pleasantly surprised. Are you sure everything's okay? Fine, fine, everything's fine. It was raining hard outside, and Mikey's black overcoat was soaked. After closing the door against the storm, I peeled the coat off him, put it on a hanger, and hung it up, hung it in the open doorway of the hall closet to dry. You don't look so good, Greg, Mikey said, frowning as he looked me over. Are you sick? He was right. I was pale, and I had lost a lot of weight, and I was pretty thin to begin with. Oh, no, not sick. I said, just tired. I've been working too hard. I haven't slept well the last few nights. That was putting it mildly. I hadn't slept well in the last week, and every time I ate, I threw up, a food, threw up food, a few, the f food a few minutes later. I'd been a wreck for a little, while, little over a year, to be honest. But especially this past week, Mikey was right. I hadn't called or seen anyone in about a year, and I hardly even ever even listened to the messages on my answering machine. I never answered the door when the doorbell rang. I hoped he couldn't see my hands shaking. You cooked Italian, Mikey asked, sniffing. Spaghetti, I said, with my own special sauce, which, by the way, if I may say so myself, is the best you'll have in this lifetime. I set the table and served up the salad, spaghetti, and garlic bread. Before we began to eat... I put on some music. This is great, Mikey said as he ate. I mean, this is delicious. He took a few more bites. You said you wanted to me to come here because something, um, well, you said something important had happened. I shook my head as I chewed my food. No, no, that's not exactly what I said. I said I wanted you to come here so we could discuss something important. He began nodding rapidly, apologetically, and said, okay, yeah, that's what you said. I'm, I'm sorry, really. I'm, Damn it, Mikey, would you stop apologizing? You didn't do anything wrong, and you don't have to treat me like I'm a member of the royal family, okay? Are we clear on that? <coughs> Mikey nodded slowly, clearly surprised by my harsh tone. I sighed and shook my head. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to snap at you like that. I've just been, well, kind of tense, on edge, but Mikey, you and I have known each other for a while now, and you've got more pull than I've ever had. I'm happy about that, happy, happy as hell. I don't act, but don't act like you're afraid of me anymore because you don't have any reason to be, and you know it, okay? I've never been afraid of you. It's just that, well, I don't want to offend you or anything. I don't want to do anything wrong. I, I'm not a mafia don, Mikey. Hell, I'm a fan. You know that. He laughed appreciatively and went back to his meal. But I did ask you here for an important reason, I said as I began to eat. He gave me a questioning look as he sucked a string of pasta into his mouth. I wanted to talk to you about a story, a story I've been working on for a long time. But I, well, I can't seem to end the damn thing. It's been hounding me haunting me. I know it's a good story, a great story, the kind of thing that could really revive my career, bring me back. But this ending, well, it just keeps slipping away from me. It's been eating at me so much. I can't sleep. I can't work on anything else. 
but I just can't crack it, so I want to ask for your thoughts, if that's all right with you, if you don't mind. He gawked at me, frowning from across the table with a bit of sauce on his lips. You mean, uh, you want my opinion on this story of yours? He asked. That's right, Mikey, and don't act like it's a big deal because it's not. Sure, Greg, sure. You want me to read it? No, not yet. I want to tell it to you. Is that okay with you? Sure, sounds like fun. Okay, then eat your food and listen up. In a light, casual tone, I began to tell him the story. Hacking through human bone is not like cutting wood, not at all. For one thing, when you're cutting wood, if you know what you're doing, it's usually dry. For another, wood isn't wrapped in skin and muscle tissue. It's a messy business, wet and tedious and sickening. It's especially sickening when you're cutting up the bones of someone you care about. I don't think I can emphasize too much just how deeply I cared about Hank, and I still do, even though he's gone. But what I did had nothing to do with my feelings for him. My decision and subsequent actions were entirely separate from our relationship, sort of like competing for a promotion with a co-worker who also happens to be your friend. Even though I'm a writer and words are my business, I can't seem to find the right ones to explain what I did, why I did what I did. I've never had this problem before. The most I can say is that I did it for selfish reasons, to breathe life back into my career, which had been wheezing along for years, barely alive. The success I'd once known, thanks to my mentor's tutelage, was gone, and I was a has-been. My last three novels had barely broken even. My current advances withered in comparison to the money I'd gotten during the height of my career. That was it. Simple as that. The height of my career was behind me, and I wanted to bring it back, desperately. I wanted to reach another peak. This sounds quite odd, but I knew in my heart that Hank would have wanted that for me, too. That's why I killed him, because I <laughs> knew that he would want me to have the success that his story could bring me. Like I said, it sounds odd, but somehow I knew right away that Hank would have to be dead. I certainly don't want to lead anyone to believe that I heard voices. For months now, I've been trying to convince my doctor of that, but I'm not sure he believes me. But my own internal voice, the one that has spoken to me every day of my life, the same internal voice possessed by everyone, yourself included, that voice, it told me that Hank would have to be gone. My own internal voice, as familiar to me as breathing, told me that there was no other way. Plagiarism was out of the question. Once again, I don't know how to explain this other than to say that in order for it to work, Hank had to be dead. If he'd moved to an island in the Caribbean and become a recluse, his life, his very existence, no matter how far away, would have been a constant obstacle, and I knew immediately that he had to disappear. And the only way to make that happen would be to kill him myself and hide his body someplace where it would never, ever be found. I didn't own a gun. I've never possessed one, so I used a length of rope. I brought him over to my house one evening in my car, ostensibly for dinner. Early in the evening, while he was looking at a gift that I'd received from a friend, a first edition signed copy of Naked Lunch, I wrapped the rope around his neck from behind and strangled him. It certainly wasn't like it is in the movies. He did not make a simple gagging sound and fall limp after a few seconds. He fought like the devil. He kicked and tried to scream and threw his fist backward over his shoulders to hit me. He knocked over a bookshelf, a table, a lamp, poked me in the eye, scratched my face twice with his fingernails, and kicked my shin hard with his heel. When he finally died, he emptied his bowels into his pants with a wet farting sound and smelled up the entire room. <laughs> Dinner was still cooking, so I hurried to the kitchen and turned off the stove. <laughs> but when I returned, I had the hacks on and was prepared to do what I had to do. I dragged him to the bathroom and stripped off his clothes then hefted his corpse into the tub. I cut him up there, running the faucet to wash the blood down the drain. I wrapped each piece in foil and plastic. I did not stop until I could fit his entire body into a suitcase. Late that night, after I'd cleaned up the mess and had dinner, 
I drove with the suitcase to a dense patch of woods about 30 miles away from the city or any residential neighborhoods. I hiked deep into those woods, dragged the suitcase and a shovel with me, and buried his remains at least five feet underground between two monstrous red redwoods. I covered the grave well and made sure there was no sign of freshly dug earth. Then I went home. I'm not a violent person. <laughs> I've never raised a hand to anyone, and I've never been in a fight, not once in my life, but killing and dismembering my friend was pretty simple. Not once, not for one moment during the entire process did I ever doubt that I was doing the right thing, and not once after that either. In fact, even now, I have no regrets. Something deep inside myself says that I probably should, but I don't. I can honestly say that I would do it again for the same reason I did it the first time. I so passionately wanted, once again, the success I'd known before. It didn't work out that way, of course, but I would still do it all again. <coughs> Would you like more spaghetti, I asked. Mikey's plate was empty, and he was slumped in his chair, staring off into space. For the last 10 or 15 minutes, I'd been pacing as I told him the story, acting out the roles, changing my voice from character to character. He'd eaten slowly the whole time, watching me, listening intently. Now his plate was empty, and he looked exhausted, his face rather empty. More spaghetti, Mikey, I asked again. <laughs> he blinked a few times and lifted his face to look at me. Oh, yeah, please, that was delicious. Yeah, I'd like some more. Okay, I said, taking his plate. I was on my way out of the dining room and into the kitchen when he stopped me with a question. Why did you tell me that, Greg? I stopped and turned to him. What do you mean? That story. Why did you tell me that story? I saw something in his face at that moment that made the skin at the back of my neck shrivel up. His eyes were different. No longer open, as open and eager as usual. Now they were dark, shaded. It's as if some sort of protective membrane had closed over them. Well, I just wanted to hear your take on it, I said. Like I said, the ending has been driving me nuts, and I just wanted an outside opinion. But why me? I mean, you've been at this much longer than I have, and you, there you go again, I said testily, taking my seat at the table again. Mikey, listen, every writer, I don't care if, he's, if it's F. Scott Fitzgerald or Judith Krantz, every writer now and then goes to another writer to talk over a story, to get an opinion, whatever. Hell, Hank came to me for advice sometimes, God rest his soul. I regretted <laughs> saying it even before the words had come all the way out of my mouth. I didn't want the conversation to go down that road, but it was too late. <clears throat> what, Mikey asked, frowning. I said, even Hank used to, no, not that. You said, God rest his soul. Every muscle in my body tensed, and I stood from my chair and began pacing again. Well, yeah, but I thought he hadn't been found. The words poured from me in a rush. He hasn't, Mikey, but my God, he's been gone for nearly two years, and I know Hank well enough to know that he wouldn't just disappear like that without contacting someone if he could, especially me, because we were really close. I knew him better than anyone, and I haven't heard from him, so I'm just assuming the poor guy's dead, that's all. That's why I said that, okay? After a moment, he asked, how long have you been working on this story? Oh, I don't know, a year and a half, maybe more. So you didn't show it to Hank? Well, no, of course not, but what's the big deal? If Hank were here, I'd show it to him, just like he used to come to me with stories. Just like Leonard used to ask Hank for advice on his work. That's what we do, Mikey, all of us. That's What's the problem? You mean Leonard Avery? Yeah, Leonard took Hank under his wing, just like Hank took me under his, and like I've tried to help you out. But um, we all go to each other for advice, for an opinion. That's just the way it works. Now I'm coming to you. He frowned thoughtfully. They never figured out who killed Leonard Avery, did they? He asked, his voice quiet and rather distant as if preoccupied. I stopped pacing and stared at him, confused. What the hell has that got to do with anything? He shook his head as if to jar his thoughts back into order, then looked at me and smiled. I'm flattered you've asked me to help you, Greg. I guess I'm just a little surprised. 
Um, you haven't. Uh, I, I just thought you'd show it to someone else first, that's all. He stared at me silently for a moment, still smiling, then asked, You haven't shown it to anyone at all, have you? <clears throat> Once again, I saw something in his eyes that chilled my blood, something much stronger than before, something deadly. No, I said, my voice a mere whisper, I haven't shown it to anyone. He smiled. Uh, he simply nodded, his smile never faltering. Then, can I read it, Greg? I was filled with dread that clogged my throat for a moment, but I finally said, sure, if you'd like, I'll get it. The manuscript was on my desk, and I hurried to get it all the while, suspecting that I was making a horrible mistake, doing something so wrong that it would alter my life forever, even more than my experience with Hank. I returned to the dining room and, headed and handed him the pages as I asked, would you like some more of that spaghetti, Hank, uh, Mikey? Oh, please, it was delicious. I took his plate to the kitchen to dish up some more for him. I had scarcely touched my own meal, and I knew I wouldn't eat any more, not tonight. After seeing what I had seen in Mikey's eyes, I was sick with fear, and I began thinking thoughts that made me suspect the lack of sleep had finally gotten the best of me, that I'd gone around the bend, over the edge. <clears throat> they were the thoughts of a madman, but they were insistent, and they grew rapidly, filling my mind with a scenario that suddenly seemed so obvious I could not understand why I hadn't thought of it before. For the first time, I began vaguely to consider myself a victim, just as much a victim as Hank had been. As Hank had taken me in and shared with me his experience and knowledge, he'd been taken in by Leonard Avery. I'm sure you've heard of him. His work was quite popular during the 50s. When I met him, he was old and in ill health, and he would have died soon anyway if he'd not been brutally murdered. Mm -hmm. Leonard was 78 when he was killed in what the police concluded was an interrupted burglary. He was shot four times, but the fatal wound came from a large knife in the chest. It was amazing to everyone who knew him that he didn't die instantly because he was suffering from pancreatic cancer. But according to the medical examiner, he struggled and fought with his attacker, and it took that knife in the heart to do him in, even after two bullets in the chest and two more in the gut. I remember talking to Hank the day after Leonard's murder. He wasn't as emotional as I expected him to be. Rather, he was quiet and reflective, and he kept looking at me with a sad smile and saying, He fought, Greg. Can you believe that? He already had a foot in the grave, but he fought like a man half his age. He struggled and kicked and fought like the great man he was. I didn't think much of it at the time. To me, it was just Hank talking with admiration about the death of his dearest friend. In fact, I thought of Leonard as I was tightening my, the, that rope around Hank's neck. I remembered what Hank said about Leonard fighting so hard at the very end, and it occurred to me that Hank was proving himself to be every bit the man Leonard had been, because just like Leonard, Hank had gone out with a hell of a fight. I remember thinking that if Hank were still alive to talk about his own death, he would have spoken of it just as admiringly as he talked of Leonard's final moments. He would have been proud of himself. Leonard had been killed two years before I killed Hank. During those two years, Leonard's death was nearly all Hank could talk about, that and the story. During those two years, especially the second, the last year of Hank's life, he was consumed by that story. He mentioned it to me in conversation, just in passing, but never gave any details. All he ever said was that it was something big, a story that might very well bring him back from the dead. In spite of his many awards and years of critical praise and commercial success, Hank's career had been swamped for a long time. By this time, the editors of magazines that once fought over his fiction wouldn't even return his calls. Hank could not, as they say, get arrested. But he kept working, picking up what money he could while his savings from the glory days were whittled down to nothing. By the time he finally shared the story with me and asked me for my input, he was a mess. He hadn't been out of his house in months, all his groceries were delivered, and he never answered his phone. In fact, there were times when I dropped by his place and knocked on the door, got no answer, although I knew he was inside because I could hear him moving around. Sometimes I could even hear the television or radio playing. 
But he finally opened up and admitted to me that he had a great story that could put him back on top if only he could come up with an ending. It had been killing him, he said, trying to find a way to tie up this absolutely perfect story, the best thing he'd ever done in his life. He'd lost sleep and couldn't eat, he said, and all he needed was a little advice. A pair of objective eyes to look over the pages he had so far, the opinion of someone he really trusted, so he showed me the story, and I killed him for it. All of that ran through my mind as I was in the kitchen dishing up Mikey's spaghetti. He was out in the dining room reading the story and waiting for his second helping, and I was standing there over the story, suddenly not so sure I wanted to go back out there. I didn't think he suspected anything. It wasn't that at all. No, I was suddenly very worried about how he would like that story, that damn story. The thoughts shooting through my mind were insane, and those ugly thoughts made me quite afraid of the young man sitting at my dining room table, just as Hank might have been afraid of me if he'd had the same thoughts. But I don't think he did. I really don't. I suspect he had no idea what was coming, which, uh, which would account for his incredible struggle. It was a surprise. In fact, I don't think he knew who was killing him. I think, he was, it, I, think I was behind him the whole time. He didn't know who, uh, who it was, but did he know why in those last moments? Did the reason for his death come to him in a flash? Once I'd filled Mikey's plate, I set it on the counter and crept back through the kitchen and across the hall to look through the doorway and into the dining room. He didn't hear me because he didn't move. He was hunched over that manuscript with all the intensity of a doctor performing brain surgery. I backed away and returned to the plate, returned the plate on the kitchen counter, <coughs> returned to the plate on the kitchen counter, picked it up, and walked into the dining room with a smile on my face, hoping it didn't look forced. Here it is, I said. He didn't move, didn't look up, didn't even seem to know I was there. I stood beside him, holding the plate in one hand, waiting for him to move the manuscript so I could set it down. Mikey, here's your spaghetti. He flinched and lifted his head, looked up at me and stammered, Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Um, thanks, Greg, thanks. He pulled the manuscript away and I set the plate down. When his, first, when his fist flew up, holding the fork, aimed straight at my throat, I, was, I surprised myself by moving quickly, as quickly as, I, as if I'd expected it. I grabbed his wrist and stopped the fork. Its tines were about an inch or so from my throat. Then I made the mistake of looking at Mikey's face. It was a fright mask, tense and wide-eyed and determined to kill me. I knew there was only one way I would survive this. I would have to kill Mikey. <clears throat> my left hand was clutching his right wrist. With the thumb of my right hand, I pulled his little finger back away from the fork, just kept pulling until the finger straightened out, and I kept pulling after that. The wild expression on his face began to pinch until it was screwed up with pain. I pulled the finger back until it broke with a thick pop. Mikey screamed like a child, dropped the fork as he fell off the chair. The manuscript fell from his other hand and the pages scattered over the floor. I pressed a knee to his chest, holding him down and shouted, why did you do that? He struggled, crying in pain, but did not answer. I said, why did you do that, Mikey? He looked at me, his eyes showing nothing but ag agony and, whisper and whimpered, Jesus, Greg, help me, please, my finger, it hurts. Why did you do it, I asked quietly. The story, he screamed. The story, damn it. I can, I can handle that story. The end, I can do it. And you were going to kill me for it? N uh, no, Greg. Jeez, you just misunderstood. That's all. I was just, I guess I moved too fast. And that's all. I moved too fast and you thought I wanted to hurt you. But I didn't. Not at all, Greg. Not at all. As he spoke, I guess my grip on his wrist loosened and I probably relaxed my hold on him, leaning back just enough so that my weight was no longer on his chest. My fault entirely. I'm not used to holding pe violent people on the floor. After all, I'm not a cop. Mikey swept his left hand up and grabbed my crotch in his, flats, in his fist, squeezing my testicles hard as if they were nothing more than bread dough. 
I cried out and fell backward to escape his grip. Before I knew it, my back had hit the floor and Mikey was on me. We'd traded places, but now he had the fork in his left hand. I watched as Mikey lifted his left hand high, then brought it down with an ugly sound from deep inside his chest, and I fought back my own pain... Um, and I fought back my own pain to lift my hand and stop him. I grabbed his arm and pushed it back, but he was younger and stronger, and I knew I didn't stand a chance. I grabbed his right hand and pushed his little finger with my thumb. Mikey screamed. I wrapped my fist around the finger and pulled as if I were trying to remove it from his head, hand. He screamed even louder and fell backward in a faint. He wasn't out for long, but long enough for me to get to my feet and grab the fork. The moment he regained consciousness, he began to fight, but I was ready. I had the fork. I had no idea how many times I stabbed him. I've been told after the fact that he was stabbed 43 times, but I find that hard to believe. I just wanted to stop him. Sure, I wanted to kill him because I knew that I needed to, but I knew then exactly what was happening. And if I did not kill him, he would kill me because he had to, just as I had to kill Hank and just as Hank had to kill Leonard. But 43 times? No, I can't believe that. I can't imagine I would do that. All I knew for sure is that I killed Michael Anderson with that fork. Beyond that, I remember very little. I have a vague memory of leaving my house covered with his blood and screaming for help. My neighbors came out of their houses one at a time, stepping cautiously onto their porches, their porch lights coming on one after another as I cried for help, and someone called the police. But that wasn't what I wanted. I wasn't screaming for help from the police. I was screaming for a kind of help that I knew I could never get. I wanted help because I knew I was a victim of something that no one would ever understand. In fact, I remember what I was screaming. Help! Please help us! It's killing us! It's killing us all! My God, it's killing us all! That's what I screamed to my neighbors. They had no idea what, that I was talking about a story. Just a simple, exquisite, absolutely perfect, but unfinished story. As I sit here in my room with its mattressed walls and locked door, I can rem can't remember everything that happened that night, but... I remember why it happened, the story. That was the only reason. All of my crazy, insane thoughts were not so crazy and insane after all. I know now why all those lives were lost. Leonard Avery, Henry Carr, and eventually Michael Anderson's. They all died because of that story, the perfect story with no ending. I wondered how many others died before Leonard, how far back it all goes. After all, the story set is set in a village. The story set in a village in no particular country, no particular time period, is absolutely timeless. But it's absolutely perfect as well, and I must admit that I've still been trying to crack that unreachable ending, even here in my room in this place. I have no idea what's happened to my copy of it, but it will most likely fall into the hands of another writer. In any case, I can do nothing from this room, and I know that the more I talk about it, the longer I will be in this room, in this hospital. I have to behave the way they want me to, so they won't keep, keep thinking that I'm crazy. But that doesn't change anything. It's still out there, waiting to be read. My doctor just visited me. Dr. Cully is tall and rather round, soft-spoken and apparently kind. At least he's very kind to me, and I still consider him kind in spite of what I know is happening. This was our third conversation, and he still seemed very concerned about my well-being. He asked how I was being treated, what I thought of the food, things like that. Then he started asking questions that made me see my future. I've gone through your personal effects, Dr. Cully said, and I found this story. It's very interesting. As I watched him and listened to him, I realized that he was trying very hard to make me think that the story enabled him to understand me a little better, but posed some sort of mysterious question that he hoped I would be able to answer. All of that was so obvious that it was difficult not to smirk, but I didn't. I'm very intrigued by this story, he went on. It is untitled and unfinished. Do you know which story I'm talking about? I couldn't hold back a smile. 
Yes, I know. Did you have an ending in mind? I'm very curious because I think this story might provi provide some important information about your problems. So did you have an ending in mind? Sitting on the edge of my bed, I looked up at him with a big grin and said, no, I didn't. Do you have an ending in mind? <laughs> he flinched and took a step backward away from me, then smiled and chuckled and said, no, no, of course not. He chuckled again. Look, Greg, just wait right here. I'll be back in a minute. I shrugged and said, I'm not going anywhere. Dr. Cully has just returned. He's smiling and saying something, but his words make no difference. I see the syringe in his hand. So that's how he's going to end it. That was damn clever. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. <laughs>